Hello and welcome everybody to this week's edition of Off the Mound with Ryan Dempster podcast presented by Sloan. I'm your host, Ryan Dempster. As usual, I want to give a shout out and a thank you to our sponsor, Sloan. Their hands-free technology is truly state-of-the-art and a league of their own and couldn't come at a better time. Sloan's technology is keeping our hands nice and clean and safe during this tough COVID-19 time. Always appreciate Sloan and everything they do to keep everyone out there safe and healthy during this time. So as we kick off this week's show, we got a doozy for you folks. This guy's done it all. I mean, if it's had to have been covered, he's covered it. From baseball to basketball, football, the XFL, he's done the Olympics. Heck, he's even covered the Rock, Paper, Scissors Championships of the world, folks. I'm always excited for a great guest. And this week, well, we got another one for you, folks. So let's get right down to it and go off the mound with the voice of Sunday Night Baseball, Matt Vaskersian. Matty, how the heck are you, pal? Demp, how did the uh, how did the rock paper scissors world championship miss you? By the way, you would have been gold in that event. I feel like that's something that I I could have really achieved at, and maybe been a two sport athlete. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's like the twinkle I can see in somebody's eyes. It's almost like I can see a ball peen hammer. You know, I can see that hammer coming down. I know it's going to be a rock. I, yeah, yeah. You know, when they, when they start squinching their eyes, it's scissors. And when they go stoic, it's paper. It's it's pure science, actually. Well, when, when, when guys like you and I, I mean, look, we're men of leisure. And I'm not sure either one of us would have been up for the training regime. That I mean, that was some serious, intense stuff back in the day. Tom Arnold was the uh, color analyst. He was kind of like in and out of lucid moments. It was... Um, <laughs> It was good, man. You would have <laughs> you would have really dug it. By the way, uh, I'd like to give a, a shout out also to Sloan uh, for having a company that is the same name as Ferris Bueller's girlfriend. Yeah, that's just thank you for that. hundred uh, percent. If you didn't have, if you watched Ferris Bueller as a as a young adult, uh, grown adult, or young adolescent teenager, and you didn't have a crush on Sloan, it's just you know that was we couldn't talk for a little while because no. No, she was. I mean, you had to have it on her, Ferris, one of the two. (laughs) I mean, that covers all the bases of taste, right? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. (laughs) How's uh, how's the uh, the broadcasting games been with this this uh, for you with the no going places and stuff? Yeah, I'm going to go out there and say I've. It's been a pleasant surprise, and that if there are a few little things that we can clean up um, and through no one's fault because everybody's really efforting this to be great or as good as it can be. But if there are, if there's just a couple of things we can tweak, it's close to foolproof. And, um, you know, the purists are all going to poo poo that and say, you've got to be there. You've got to be at the ballpark. I get it. And it is different and arguably better when you're there in person. The the risk reward thing just it just screams that this is going to be a permanent part of our broadcasting plans moving forward. Even with a vaccine, I think that we're going to be in the studio for a lot of these games, and it's been okay. Like you know, late substitutions. Thank goodness there's no pitcher hitting anymore and no double switches because late substitutions you don't know where guys are going. If there's a pinch runner or a pinch hitter, and then you see some changes the next half inning. But if that's our only complaint, it's actually been okay. 
Yeah, I you know what? I've done a couple like popped up for three innings in the booth with with Len and JD and I I agree, man. I I thought it was going to be a lot harder to uh get the feel of it, but really if you're get as long as you're getting it in real time, it it makes a lot of sense. And like I mean, we're going to miss stuff in the studio for sure. Like at some point you're going to get fooled on something and then your temptation you're going to, you know, your default is going to blame the fact that you're in the studio when in fact that probably wasn't the case. You probably just boxed it anyway. And I don't know, like think about doing a game up in DC. Think about being up in the stratosphere in that so-called press box. You're, (laughs) you're you're working off the monitor anyway. I can't see a thing from up there. Like, and so it's, it's three or four less balls a game that I'm going to get fooled on because I'm sitting so high up. Because invariably, I think everything's a homer in that place. Yeah, well, so you're, it, you're right. You can't tell. You can't tell anything from up there, as far as maybe other than you know a ground ball, and even some of the ground balls look like they're line drives. That's true. Yeah, even yeah, even ground balls are tricky up there. So look, I'm I'm big thumbs up, full steam ahead on on doing games from the studio, and I think the other sports are going to do it too. I think, you know, I think it's going to be challenging. Uh, in basketball, I think, you know, it'll certainly be challenging for a hockey announcer who's used to being there. Uh, I know they're there now because those sports are in bubbles. But when it goes back to a full schedule and regional broadcasts, I think we're going to see this moving forward. Yeah. Well, you know, you're such a recognizable voice to everybody when you call games. You do such a great job of it. But, you you know, you know, going all the way back, you've you've been in TV since, you know, you were a kid doing uh, child acting and stuff like that. Was sports always something that you saw yourself getting into or loving, or how did that kind of take place where you all of a sudden were like, oh, I'm going to get into broadcasting? Yeah, no, I I never would have dreamt as a kid that I could have done this, you know, quote unquote professionally and made a living at it because I, I was just a Yahoo kid growing up in Oakland, California, in the East Bay uh, love the A's, couldn't get enough A's baseball on the radio, on TV. And, you know, I'm 52. When I was a kid, not every game was on TV. In fact, very few games were on TV. So you're listening on the radio. Uh, and I, I just, I loved the craft of it. Um, my quote unquote acting career too was, was nothing more than being kind of a, you know, precocious kid who could remember stuff and they'd wind you up with a line shove you on the rear end and, you know, kind of move you into a scene. You repeat your line, you leave, everybody says you're great. Uh, and then you turn into Jerry Mathers and you get older and not so cute and it's, it's over. Uh, so <laughs> that was the acting career, but you know, I, I, I never thought I'd be a broadcaster Demp. I never thought I could do this professionally. And I, some would argue that I'm still not doing it professionally, but that's their opinion. Um, I, I think you can do something time to time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you do something and you get paid for it, you're doing it professionally as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, I met the right people when I was younger and trying to do this. And my first gig was with the Cubs, man. It was with the Huntington Cubs in the Appalachian league in 1990, a now defunct team in a, you know, now kind of, you know, life support league. You go to USC, which is, you know, has a very, very good film school and they do um, good work with that. Did you always envision yourself being in TV of some sort and then sports just kind of presented an opportunity? No, sports was the interest. I mean, I I was kind of a fake 
movie TV guy. Uh, I never really had the heart and the temperament for that culture. And I should have known because at USC, they offered, uh, they offered, you know, emphasis programs like minors. So I was a communications major and my emphasis was going to be film, film and TV. It's a world renowned film department. And I, I, you know, looking back, I was not smart enough or probably cultured enough to fit in with that group. And I should have known when my first thesis paper, you could choose any film and write about its virtues. And most of the kids, you know, artsy kids were doing uh, Boonwell, uh, Truffaut films, you know, Day for Night. Um, you'd get somebody, you know, maybe slumming it by doing a Hitchcock movie. I did Rocky too. <laughs> so I'm sure that like when the TAs all saw that, they're like, oh, come on, dude. You, you didn't want to just write about Porky's, you jerk, you know? <laughs> Didn't fit. I didn't fit in, and uh, and that's okay because sports was kind of where I ultimately ended up uh, fitting in anyway. If Rocky Four had been out then, would you have done Rocky Four or still stuck with Rocky Two? I don't know. Two. Uh, I thought Two was the sweet spot of all, the whole franchise, and uh, you know, I like everybody have seen them all. Two was the one for me where that's that, where that started to jump the shark was Clubber Lang, like yeah. Mr. T. I get it. The action figure was funny and you were funny, but that's where the franchise started to suck. Yeah, you can't box the gold chains on either, so that's usually going to be a problem. <laughs> um, you So then you get in, you do minor league work for six years. Um, you get, at a young age, 29 years old, you get in to be the play-by-playboys for the Brewers. Um, how, how exciting was that for you? That was a, I mean, you know, cliche, but that was a dream come true. I didn't know if it was ever going to happen. And I remember I was living in Tucson. I was prepared to go back to do another year of of AAA baseball there because I really liked the franchise and the city. I liked being there. Uh, Perfectly fine staying. And I remember getting the call because I had auditioned for their radio job the year before to be Euchre's sidekick and didn't get that job. So the following year, lo and behold, a TV opening occurs and I pushed myself into that one, had some people pushing for me, uh, including, which was a cool thing, guys that I knew from the minors who were playing with the big league team at that time, because in El Paso, which is one of the cities that I worked in the minors, mm-hmm. was a Brewers affiliate. So Mike Matheny, Jeff Cirillo, uh, left-hander named Scott Carl, Mark Loretta, like there were a handful of guys that I was friendly with that um, played for the big league team. And Cirillo, among others, like went to the director of broadcasting. He's like, hey, I know this guy. He's pretty good. So it was a cool endorsement. And I ended up getting the TV job, which was, was awesome. It was everything you dream of as a kid, like getting there. I was never good enough to play. So my call up to the big leagues was going to be in that arena. And when it happened, I was I was pretty pumped. And you got to be with the Brewers, which was still American League, or they'd switched by then. Yeah, one year, one year one of year. American League. So you got to like have the the worlds collide with your A's and your Brewers at the same time. Because you came one up, year you, of that, yeah. When you came, when you were growing up, you talk about it. You know, you're seven years old. You know, what is it, five, six, seven years old? They win three championships in a row in in Oakland. I mean. You're just like, how, how, how do you not fall in love, obviously, being with the A's? When you're having that job and you're with the Brewers was, was the goal at that time, not knowing where you are now, 
to be like, I want to be the A's broadcaster one day? Uh, I, I think I wanted to get back to California someday eventually, but I, I was just so happy to be there. And I, I also understood the culture around that fan base was such that I was accepted as kind of a J.O., yeah. as kind of a guy that was doing it a little differently and didn't really care. Um, I, I would never have the nerve to do some of the nonsense that I did on the air when I was younger because I it was tr- it was truly just a kid having a good time, having the time of his life. I wasn't trying to be a clown. I wasn't trying to uh, you know make myself bigger than the game. God knows I was not doing that. I was just having fun. But now you know as an as an adult, you're aware of the the ramifications of doing it that way. Cause now it's a career back then. It was like, you know, this is a blast. I'm having so much fun. If I get fired in three years or I don't get my contract renewed, that would suck, but I'll do something else. Then you get to that middle age part of your life. And this is true of anybody in any walk of life. And you've had so much skin in the game in this career. It would be devastating if you had to start over in another one. So Back then, man, didn't care. Let the hair down, have fun. <laughs> and it was great. It was great. It worked in Milwaukee. It might not have worked anywhere else. That's what I was That's what I was driving at. I, I was aware of how lucky I was to be in a market like that where it was okay to do it differently. Um, speaking of doing it differently, and a guy that you mentioned, so like you try out for the you know radio job to be alongside Uke. Did that, did that help having a guy, because Uke's known as being, you know, one of the more colorful, if not one of the most colorful broadcasters, you know, in the history of the game. And to have somebody, even though you're not working in the same booth with him, you're working for the same team day in, day out, seeing him. What was it like having him as somebody you could lean on? You know, it was it was fun to being around Uke in those days because when he wanted to tell you a story and bring you in on something, my God, there was nobody that could hold an audience better. I mean, whether he was telling you something with gravitas or something funny, which was usually the case. Uh, But as far as like being a colleague, he was doing radio, I was doing TV and we were never on the air together. Um, And look, I I don't think I understood this at the time and I've, I've never said this publicly, but I didn't really understand that that was Uke's turf. That was his territory. And if a younger guy comes in, and even if he's not trying to, which I was not trying to, but if a younger guy comes in and resonates with the fan base, you have to step lightly around that because that, that that's his gig, man. That's his franchise. Yeah. And I didn't get that at the time. Um, but you know, occasionally when you would be quieter to himself, I'd think maybe he was hacked off at you for something or mad about something. It was just, that, you know, he did, didn't always want to bring you in. Um, he was just shaking off the previous night's hangover. That's all. <laughs> Let me tell you, you know, this is a dumb story because it's just, there's not a huge payoff here, but this is, this is you in a nutshell. I remember uh, the Brewers were playing the White Sox. He was always the first off the bus because he sat in the front. And so everybody kind of followed you, you know, so. Players are on the bus, coaches, um, and we're getting off the bus at U.S. Cellular Field. And there's a, a vendor, a kid with his cart. And it was, I don't know what it, what it was in there, peanuts or popcorn or whatever. And he's, he's sitting in the tunnel on the floor with his cart on the floor. He's got earphones in. He's trying to light a cigarette. 
and his shoes are untied. The dude was a mess. And Euchre walks by this kid, stops for a minute. He's got his sunglasses on, dressed to the nines, looks cocky as hell. He stops in front of this kid and goes, hey, buddy, doing a great job there. And then just keeps walking. (laughs) (laughs) It's just all all you need for Euchre. He's so perfectly dry, always hit the right note. And I can still hear his voice doing that. And I, I laughed about that for a week. It's almost like the uh, the big gulps thing from Dumb and Dumber. Like, big gulps, huh? All right, we'll see you later. Just yeah. like... <laughs> yeah. Super dry yeah. and to the point. Well, yeah. he's he's beloved up there. They love him in Milwaukee and rightfully so. No doubt. Um, you've, you've bounced around. You've done so many things. Like, you know, obviously you do you know, ESPN, Sunday night baseball, MLB network, you know, Fox, all these different things that you've done, but like your range of sports is incredible. Like from football, the X, dude, you did the original XFL. Yeah. How about that? Wow, man. What was that like? I've never even asked you this ever before. What was, what was that like to just, you know, tackle on something like the NFL to watch something go head to head against the NFL? And then crash and burn as it turned into everything it, it was supposed to not turn into. Yeah, it was harrowing. Um, look, there was an it was an exciting kind of launch. Like the when the when we were working up to opening day, it was pretty exciting. Um, and like any startup thing, there's goods and bads to being involved in a startup. The good is that you're in at the ground level. You do have a little bit of stock in that. The bad is that it's still it hasn't defined itself yet. And look, the XFL was changing the rules up until the bitter end every week because it just it just couldn't it wasn't the football part of it wasn't ready for national TV. I still am convinced that if they had played a year in relative anonymity and then done a TV deal, it would have been better if McMahon had stayed in the background as he was supposed to. It would have been better. But there were too many people from the conventional sports world that wanted to see him fail because he tried to push out of his cartoon existence and enter mainstream. It's it's it, here's a bad example. It's like it's like the dude Elon Musk with Tesla, right? Yep. He's challenging the entire automotive industry. So the big three, the, the all the standard blue blood manufacturers are going to try to keep him out. It's the same thing that happened with McMahon. As soon as he tried to go mainstream, he was challenging the NFL. He was challenging all the four seasonal sports and their networks. They they didn't want him to, to succeed at all. So, I, I mean, to answer your question, long answer, it was yeah. super exciting until it launched. And then it was it was really aggravating. I mean, I was, I, I you know, I got taken off the main game after the first week because I didn't pitch it hard enough. And I was convinced I was really convinced that when I went to Starbucks in the morning, I was being laughed at. That's how it just permeated my psyche. It was, it was terrible to be a part of such a high profile failure. And I thought that my career in sports was over. I thought, you know, I'll just be doing Brewers baseball. And at some point I'll probably not be asked back on that. And maybe I'll go back to school. Really? I mean, that's, that's how I felt. It was, but looking looking back at that man, you're never good at anything unless you really, really fail at it. And yeah. that 
that experience was a good one for me, even though it was hard at the time. And it, as an athlete, I mean, you probably feel the same way. Like until you, yeah. until you give up six earned in an inning, right? You just don't know who you are yet. Yeah, no, you're right. Cause just the, that exact fact actually, you know, you learn so much. Sure. You learn from your successes, but you learn way more from your failures. I, I always felt like, and, um, you know, in baseball, you know, post-career, you know, doing stand-up comedy and going to clubs and, you know, having a good set and having a smile on my face, having a good set, smile on my face, and then bombing and, you know, walking off and I'm like down and dejected. And my buddy put his hand on my shoulder. He said, right on, man. Now you're a comic. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. You, yeah. You know, I was yeah. like, whoa. I'm like, okay. I get that. And, you know, you do, you take stock in the experiences too, right? So if I hadn't done the XFL, I would not have had the dinner that I had in the governor's mansion in Minneapolis with governor Jesse Ventura. Like I had dinner in the governor's mansion with served by a butler. Uh, <laughs> never would have had that before. Was the butler a former wrestler? No, no. Okay. He, he was kind of like the butler from trading places where oh, he was yeah. a little sarcastic. And I was convinced that he was back there, you know, hitting the, hitting the bottle himself and the, uh, you know, each course would come out a little wobblier as the night wore on. <laughs> One drink for you, two for me. Yeah. <laughs> I flew on a private plane for the first time in my life because I was on Vince's plane once and that was super cool. I mean, uh, at, at the end of it, when I got taken off the games and I was feeling about as low as I could, I got a random phone call from one of my comedic heroes who I had never met before. And he called me just because he felt bad about how much crap I was taking. Dennis Miller, who was really? going through his, yeah, he was going through his own, uh, you know, criticisms for being in the Monday night football booth. And I, I pick up the phone and it's a number I don't recognize. And I, hey, is this Matt? Yeah, Dennis Miller. F him, babe. Don't worry about, you know, he's doing his, he's doing Dennis Miller. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, this has got to be a buddy of mine or something. I'm like, is this really Dennis? He's like, yeah, I got your number from such, such. I said, uh, 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 I love the show last night. This is when he had his HBO show. And I remembered a couple of his jokes from the previous night's show. And I recited them to him. And he paused. And he went, oh, you like those, do you? Well, look, this isn't going to be a whole long thing. I just want to call and tell you, hang in there, babe. I was trying to engage him. Like I wanted to be his bro. Like, Hey, can I come to a taping? Hey, you know, I've got some stuff. I do a little writing on the side, Dennis. He wanted to make it clear that he was calling me to say, don't worry about it. Critics are critics. And that was, that was it. How great is that though? Like to, to, to have somebody who obviously admires your work, right? Somebody that you're a fan, not ever met before. And then sitting there reaching out to you. That that's, that's cool stuff. I think he just felt bad. He just felt bad for me. And he was getting pounded. Remember the pounding he used to take? Oh, God, people? yeah. Just so unfair, right? Just like somebody who thinks that a broadcast should sound the way they want it to sound. And that's the thing about broadcasting that gets you. You know, it, you love what you do, and I love what I do. But the entitlement of certain people who think you should do it one way versus the other, like, wow, man, that's, that's a lot. I'll just... I will just like respectfully disagree with you and keep doing what I do. Yeah. Well, especially somebody like him who's taken over in the booth, you know, because people had it one way for so long. And then, you know, like you said, it's like great. You, you know, it's the old Mitch Hedberg line, you know, you can't please all the people all the time. And last night, all those people were at my show. And <laughs> that's, that's, how, that's how it is. Sometimes you get done. You're like, man, that was good. And then 
you, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, whoa, man, people are telling you like, you know, stay out of the booth or hey, get out of broadcasting. You're like, wow, I, th- I thought that was pretty good time up there, but I guess I don't know what I'm doing. They'll make yeah. you question yourself. Yeah. No doubt. Not easy. But you, and you've just continued to, you know, since that moment to do so many things. Like I'm always interested because I think it's the one sporting event or sporting spectacle that everybody, no matter who you are, can't help but watching. But to cover the Olympics, you call baseball, softball, you know, freestyle skiing. And the one I was just looking at ski jumping. Yes. Now, now, how does one prepare for, for calling ski jumping? Well, this was, this was my own methodology. It wasn't really what I was instructed to do, but I found the best way for me to get into that sport was to spend the day at Ikea going up and down the aisles, learning how to pronounce the Schugans and the Slurgans and the Virgindudens. Uh, that really, like other than that, you can, there's, you know, there's stuff on YouTube. Uh, NBC has a wonderful research department and they do as, as good a job as anybody could do in preparing you with actual text and information. But look, I'm a, I'm an Armenian kid from Northern California who's, who was not, not an athlete in any sport. So for me to, for me to speak authoritatively on something I've never done. And by the way, I went to the top of the quote unquote small hill and looked down it. I almost hurled like Dude, that. Uh, yes. How steep is that? Oh, oh. oh my God. It's harrowing, man. Like I, I got the chills. I got the chills just looking down the hill. I wasn't even close to it. Um, You're going up to the skiers and like, Hey, where do you guys put your parachutes at? Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. And then when somebody tells you, and, and I had a partner doing ski jumping who was a terrific guy named Jeff Hastings, who was a captain of the U.S. men's ski jumping team in the 80s. And the U.S. has never been good at this because it's just not in our DNA. Uh, and now there's freestyle skiing and, you know, what's referred to as extreme sports, which uh, Americans are very good at. But ski jumping was not in our wheelhouse for many, many years. Jeff was was one of the few guys that was good at it. And when he explained to me that uh, weight is a big deal and the tendency, a lot of these uh, ski jumpers um, from places like Japan and Norway and Sweden, where it's popular, they'll starve themselves. And a lot of these guys turn to, you know, eating disorders are not uncommon in this culture. And making weight can be a matter of just putting a handful of snow in your mouth right before you step on the scale because you have to be a certain minimum weight culture around the thing was foreign to me. And, and that's why look, you can, you can do a professional job and tee up your analyst and you can be a, a guy who sounds good and authoritative and you have the bio information in front of you, but you can't expect yourself to be um, an analyst in the sport, the way you could something that you really grew up with. So I tried to just kind of stay out of the way set up the analyst. And I'll say this too, uh, the Olympics are are surprisingly Bush league, not the broadcasting part of it because NBC does an amazing job, but the events themselves, like, you know, uh, from the way they build these little overnight facilities and then tear them down as soon as the circus leaves to some of the organizational infrastructure, like, you know, we sit home and we sit on our couches, especially for the winter games, and you watch the pageantry 
and these amazing pictures that come back. TV makes the Olympics yes. as a, as an on-site spectator sport. It's it's a little bush, I gotta say. It's like the carnival that r- rides through town and sets up in the local parking lot of like the the Win Dixie somewhere. You know, <laughs> but but if you put the cameras in the right, they do. They make it look so spectacular. Meanwhile, you know the ski jumping. Uh, platform or what do you call that the uh the building that it's on is reminiscent of the old milwaukee brewers slide that bernie used to slide down that's that's a good comp that's it's exactly when you look at it in person you're like this was the thing that looks so uh majestic on tv yeah I i remember i did that i my rookie year i went in milwaukee in 1998 so you were the broadcaster i don't know if you remember this because they showed it pregame but i slid down the slide with the marlins and uh, aside from worrying about getting some sort of hepatitis because of the exposing <laughs> nails that were up there, the rusty nails, I, I, I was scared to death. I was like, this is a bad idea, Ryan. This is you're here to play baseball and, and this is not good. And, and then now the new Bernie the Brewer slide, man, I'll, I'll do that in a Speedo all day, all day. It's night and day, the adjustments they've made there. Yeah, but they've taken the soul out of it. I, that old chalet was awesome, especially because... You know, the old suit, like any any costume where you can see the person's actual arms and wrists, I, I think <laughs> those are, they're the best. Like, you know, he's got like the hat, the head, the shoulder pads, the suspenders, and the gloves, but there's that, you know, like four and a half inch space between where the sleeve cuts off and the glove begins. You can see the guy's wrists. <laughs> I yeah. just love that stuff. <laughs> Uh, I love my I love myself some mascots like just I don't know why it, it, maybe it's the clown in me but like I always love messing with them I love messing with the Philly fanatic I love messing with any Gapper I once dressed up as Gapper July fourth in Cincinnati four innings out on the field sweating like crazy almost Wait, ready to what's throw. what's Gapper Cincinnati Reds mascot not Mister Red or Rosie Red but they have Gapper who's a fanatic looking uh mascot kind of i don't um, even remember gapper i mean yeah. you know you you being canadian like you got to have a soft spot for yuppie oh man i used to just i i would watch yuppie more than i would watch the game <laughs> i wanted to know where yuppie was going after the game so yuppie and i could go share drinks together <laughs> yeah. but i i went out so one day i'm getting ready to go to the dugout and Gapper's dressing room was directly across from our exit to the dugout, and the door was open, and the, the costume was laying out. And I'm like, "Well, yeah, let's do this." And so I threw it on, and I had three buddies sitting out behind home plate. Some buddies were back there, and I knew where they were. But you know, those things you gotta like. It's like you're looking up at the sky to look down because you gotta see out that little hole. And I'm taking pictures. <laughs> I was dancing on top of the dugout. And all of a sudden, I just hear this voice from my buddy, Sean. I recognize his voice. He goes, hey, there's Gapper. Let's get a picture with him. And I'm like, oh, this is too good. This is way <laughs> too good. And I just went over there, and I poured their popcorn all over them. And I was grabbing their tush, and I was just having fun with them. <laughs> Have you seen the uh, the YouTube video of the guy that went to a Dodger game about five, six years ago in a – it was like a lion suit or a bear. It was a big bear suit. And he unauthorized mascot, right? He put the suit on at the ballpark, went down the aisle, and in between innings started dancing on the dugout. He's got like a Dodger hat on. And the 
the costume is it's convincing enough to where you maybe could think to yourself, oh, this is a Dodger mascot. I've never seen him before. And you see people's faces kind of like clapping and like, and then their faces get, you know, increasingly concerned. And then an actual usher comes and pulls the guy down. The guy, he showed up and crashed as a mascot at Dodger (laughs) Stadium of all places. That's a, that's a bold play. You know, if you're going to do that to try, because they don't normally let you in. I don't know if he backpacked that in. Had to have. Changing the bathroom. Yeah, because like, you know, outside of a military uniform, you're not getting in the ballpark with any any gear on. I've tried. Uh, <laughs> hey, let me ask you this. Who who was who was a teammate? And if I'm putting you on the spot, just blow me off. But w- did you have teammates that re- that didn't like when you did stuff like that? Like you had your fun when you played. Yeah. Well documented. Did you play with guys that were just constantly fun killers? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Early on in my career, I'd, I'd say fun killers were like, uh, Greg Zahn was a bit of a fun killer. Hmm. He, he didn't like it. I think it came that stemmed from a place of, you know, they just won the World Series and he was on that team. And then now he had like 15 rookies to deal with. Hmm. And we yeah. probably should have been focusing a little bit more on baseball. Um, Dave, an infielder by the name of Dave Berg. Like if you wanted, if you were in a happy mood and you just wanted to feel like what it was like to be in a bad mood, you could just go talk to Dave <laughs> for a little bit. I remember that guy. I remember him as a player. Yeah. And Mikey Lowell. Mikey Lowell was great. But if Mikey was like struggling at the plate and you and you were having too much fun, he he didn't like that. Oh, okay. You know, don't 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 start messing with me when I'm not going good right now. Yep, which I was which it. I respected. I, I I tried to learn as I went along. And that's a hard thing to do who you can, you know, like when a guy punches out with the bases loaded and he walks by in the dugout and you just drop a, I wouldn't have swung at that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) you find out real quick, the guys you can say that to, and you can't say that to like Cliff, I could say anything to Cliff at any time and he was fine with it. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why we got along so well for, you know, going on 20 years now. So, Yeah. Mikey Lowell, by the way, under underrated tennis player, beast, yes. sandbagger, beast. Yep. Dragged me, dragged me out to play last year, and I dragged him out to play. He's like, yeah, I used to play a little bit in high school. I'm like, okay, so did I. Like, we're probably, you know, commensurate, not even close. And then he, and then he admits to me afterwards, like, well, there's there's a couple people I hit with, you know, locally, and one of them's a, on the tour, female player who's on the tour. I'm like, dude, come on, man, seriously. <laughs> He's a sneaky good athlete, though, Matty. He is. He is. He's like he can shoot the rock. He can play a little hoops. You know, it's just he's got that pear shaped body. So we're like, ah, oh, he doesn't look that athletic. But when he gets out there, he's he's got the feet to play third base. So he's got the feet to do a lot of things. No doubt. And dancer too. Don't think don't think that he's not a good dancer. You know. Yeah, I, you know what? If you'd asked me yes or no, can Mike Lowell dance? After watching him play tennis, um, I'm a yes on that because you're right. He's He's just, he's a professional athlete. Like th- there was a couple other common folks that uh, we played with a group, and uh, one of the guys was like, you know, like seriously, like the guy used to turn around Mariano Rivera. Like, of course he's gonna be able to play tennis with you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Plus, Bertica, his wife is a dance instructor, amazing dancer. So she know she wasn't gonna get together with anybody who didn't have two two left feet. You know, he's got to be able to shake a little. So. Yeah. Um, you're, you know, now you're doing Sunday night baseball, which is, you know, super awesome and, and kind of a, like a, a big honor in the sense that you're the only game going on Sunday nights. 
you know, you could be calling any other game, any other time for other teams, but uh, all eyes on you for Sunday night. Did when you first started that, not that you feel the pressure because I've worked with you, but did you sense that or understand that a little bit more than maybe in another time calling just teams for a game and games for a team in particular? Uh, yeah, you do. You do feel the responsibility of um, servicing the franchise that is Sunday night baseball properly. And it's not the place to start doing a bunch of shtick. It's not the place to do celebrity lookalikes right out of the gate or whatever tomfoolery that you find yourself doing sometimes. But more so than than having a standalone game, the thing that was in my head for a long time, and still is to a degree, is the fact that the only two other guys that have done that gig are two of the best play-by-play guys that have ever walked the earth, and John Miller and Dan Schulman. So... For me to come in and be, you know, anything less than that, uh, I would have felt like I was disappointing again. Sunday night baseball and the the franchise, like it's it's got some esteem to it that you need to uphold. And and I you know I don't take myself seriously at all, but I do take my work seriously, and that that's that that is the thing I take the most seriously is those are those games. Um, I want it to be good. And sometimes, you know, if I box something, if I'm not as sharp as I should be, it's, uh, it's, it's magnified. My disappointment is magnified as compared to if you were doing it, you know, smaller regional TV and, and don't get me wrong. You want to be good every time you're on the air, you, you, you feel the same way, but there's a little extra for that game for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you do an unbelievable job of it, and and at MLB Network as well. Um, I know, I know they miss you. They they really regret having Roflo do Central. You know, <laughs> especially Lauren. She 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 misses you a lot there. But uh, your your celebrity guest fill ins every once in a while. Now that you big time, you know. Oh uh, yeah, are, yeah, are, are a ton of fun. I miss doing that show with those guys. Look, it's you probably feel the same way because you're on there frequently. When you're, and this is the good and bad of doing something like that with people that are your friends. Occasionally, you let your guard down. <laughs> D-Roll yeah. lets his guard down constantly on that show because you're sitting on the couch, you're looking at your your you know your colleague, your castmate, if you will, and that person happens to be a friend. So sometimes you go places that you might not want to go. And, and I actually paid for that um, doing Sunday Night Baseball, you know, the first year of not being with Lauren and D-Row for three years. And I'm, I'm with another female athlete and male athlete in A-Rod and Jessica. And our dynamic was completely different than it was with D-Row and Lauren. But, you know, you, you get colloquial and you let your guard down occasionally. You say something and you're like, oh, man, I'm not sitting here with Lauren and D-Row, am I? Like, I just put them in a weird spot because they yeah. don't know me like Lauren and D-Row know me. And they don't know to say, hey, shut up, Maddie, or whatever. They were trying to, you know, whatever. There's no, there's no like, right or wrong way to go. It's just a different vibe. Uh, but I do miss that because we, we had a pretty, uh, pretty fun time for those years. And you were a big part of that, too, man. It was fun. No, it's a tremendous place to work. I tell people that all the time. It's uh, it's really, really incredible. It's it's like being in the locker room in a in a studio. Just you know, everybody's laughing and having fun, and and takes their work very seriously. The guys put in, and and girls put in a ton of work to 
to make sure that we're giving the fans out there the best baseball stuff they can get. So um, we're, we're lucky, Maddie. We're lucky. We are lucky. Yes, we are. And I'm hope I'm hoping it stays like that for a long time. Cause the, I think this is all changing, man. The business is changing at such a breakneck pace. Uh, you know, the, the pandemic has expedited what was coming anyway. And we touched on it earlier, calling games from studios, um, you know, some of the behind the scenes tech talk that we won't bore anybody with. Yeah, no doubt. I hope, I hope that we, you know, you know, this pandemic has definitely, you know, opened a lot of eyes in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I just hope that we get through 60 games here because I'm, I'm excited by all this, you know, when people are like 60 games, I'm like, everybody's in it. All the teams, they're all in it. You know, nobody, nobody's out of it. Cause that's usually at about 60 games. Whereas you start to see teams fade, um, you know, especially teams yeah. like your Oakland A's look really good. If you, they do. If, I, if I could have you pick right now, I'm, I want you to give me, I won't even put you on the spot as who's going to be the world series champion. Cause we know that's too hard. I want you to. I want you to give me an AL and NLCS matchups. Mm, okay. Um, I'd like to think the Rockies are dangerous, and I'd love it if they're good this year because I love Buddy Black. He's one of my favorite people in baseball. And, um, and fall baseball in Colorado is awesome. Like yeah. the 07 World Series outside of my own World Series in 2016, uh, and then 2013 with the Red Sox and 2016 with the Cubs. 07 in Colorado was one those games were some of the coolest games ever. Yeah, and the series itself stunk, right? Because it was yeah. just never close. No. Um, so I I don't know. I like the Cubs a lot. Look, if Chatwood uh, straightens it out, which I know people a lot of people are very optimistic that he will, their rotation, they're good, man. Like, yep. how did we miss that? How did how did we miss that they were gonna be good this year when everybody was talking about the NL and the NL Central. Because they don't they don't all throw 95, right? Like we get so caught up and everybody has to throw 90. They got a couple of those guys. Chatwood throws that hard. You Darvish throws that hard. But at the end of the day, it just comes down to pitching and hitting your spots. You know, the Maddox said it perfectly, never sacrifice lo- location for velocity. Uh, and, I love it. You know, I Johnny Lester it. Johnny Lester said to me, I said, great job. And he said, yeah, smoke and mirrors, Ryan. And I said, yeah, cool. There's a lot of dudes out there throwing 98 that can't get anybody out. Yeah. So, it's true. you know, when you get older, there's just more mirrors and a little bit more smoke. Well, I mean, you, you, you still have to have the smoke too. Like look at what's happening with one of your old uniforms now, the Red Sox and they're they are throwing uh, fewer than 50% fastballs as a staff just cuz they just don't have that kind of guy anymore. Yeah. And man, what a rough what a rough spot they're in right now. But back to your original question. Um I'll give you an NLCS matchup of the Cubs and the Rockies. Okay. American League. Um, man, I would I, I would have gotten gone off on a limb and said Cleveland before the bad decision making of uh, two younger members of their pitching staff put the whole team in a wonky place. Uh, so let's go with Oakland, just because I would have anyway, even if they were, you know, two and twelve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> let's go with Oakland and the Yankees. And then, and then it gets into that scary place as an Oakland A's fan where you just can't get past the Yankees in a postseason series. It dates back to 1980. Just can't, I, they just can't get past them. Um, maybe this is the year cause the A's soup to nuts. Uh, their pitching is commensurate and their starting staff. I might give it 
little tip of the cap to the A's in that one for the first time in forever. I like it. That was my that was my preseason pick to win the World Series. Don't tell anybody on the Cubs I said that. The A's? I, either they were good last year. Bob Melvin has them ready every time. If you don't think Matt Chapman's not the best third baseman in baseball, I mean, this kid is an absolute stud. But because they play in Oakland and everybody's asleep on the East Coast, we forget about how good they are, and their bullpen is a joke. Bullpen's good. Yep. Starting staff's good. Montes is way better than he ever was as a young White Sox farmhand. Uh, yeah, man, they're good. I they're good. I just, I, I wish, you know, I just wish that uh, that brand could get some consistency with a ballpark. And I wish they could be referred to as something. Here's something for you. I don't want to take you far too down a rabbit hole here with A's yeah. culture. But when I was growing up, it used to really chap my rear end that the A's were never covered the way the Giants were. Even when they were good, even when the Giants were terrible, the Giants were always above the fold in the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Francisco Examiner. A's were in the fine print. It took uh, a, a book that I read a couple years ago to finally answer that question. When Charlie Finley owned the team and had alienated the entire sports media uh, culture of Northern California by making uh, by kicking guys off the planes, because back then writers traveled with the team on the charters. So Charlie would it was it was systematic. Like first he started by uh, taking the spread away for the writers before the game. And then he would, he'd get mad at a writer for something unflattering that was written. He'd kick them off the charters and then he would limit their access at the ballpark. And then he would, he would do press conferences only for certain members of the media. Like the writers hated this guy just as much as the players. And they just decided they'd stop covering him. And what happened? Like, even after Finley left, those writers were still around and they'd been so burned by the Oakland A's that it just became a giant's town in the media. I think that that's changed now, but as a kid, man, there were years where I just didn't get how the A's weren't getting the love they should get locally. And uh, that that's, you know, I think White Sox fans could probably identify with that to a degree, right? The, yeah, you're the second absolutely. brand in the market and it stinks to be a fan of that brand sometimes. Yeah. And, and then you would feel it as, as a player on the, on the Cubs, when those guys would come to Wrigley, they, they didn't like us. You know, and I got great relationships with Paul Canerico and Jermaine Dye and even AJ Przinsky and all these guys. I'm friend, but when we would play those guys during the year, it was like they they were it was ready to fight. It was wow. because because of that exact dynamic. I think you know, just feeling like you know the second fiddle in the town when they had just as good a team as we did. Is that was that the was that the cause for the Przinsky Michael Barrett punch? <laughs> uh well no because that was Barrett who punched him. But I I didn't I I I knew I know I know both of those guys. Uh I'm I'm still friendly with AJ like you know I keep in touch with AJ, but when Michael Barrett was in San Diego, I got to know him pretty well and found him to be a really good dude. I like both of those guys. I don't understand how two good guys could have had a moment like that. You know, I I just think that came down to like you like exactly. I think you're right. The the dynamic of that rivalry that we had for a team that we only played six times a year, that didn't matter in our own division or anything like that, it created this like angst when you face them. Like mm. I still still to this day the the worst moment as a closer I ever had, or one of my worst moments 
at Wrigley Field was the three-run homer I gave up to Brzezinski to blow a save. Because like really? he, he's yelling around the bases and the crowd, the bleachers are throwing stuff. And it was like I two out and AJ up. And it had that been a three-run homer to Andre Ethier facing the Dodgers or, you know, John Carlos Stanton as I'm facing the Marlins, I would have been like, oh, that sucks and I'll get past it. But that one, like, I still have nightmares about. Oh, man, that's funny. And I think that's what happened. I think that's what happened with Michael. It was like he's just like he popped up and he's like, it's just AJ and um, I hate the White Sox and let's just fight. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've never heard you talk about that before, but that – that explanation actually makes a lot of sense because I think even now, like those are two really good dudes, two of the better guys in baseball, to my experiences. And yeah, uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's that's a good answer for that. And now both teams are really good this year, so they got a really good you know bunch of kids down there who can who can swing the bats. They're fun to watch. They are, and Ozzie yeah. Guillen hates Nick Swisher. <laughs> Ozzy, man, he is so entertaining. You know, I'm bummed. I hope somebody gives him a shot somewhere. I don't know if he'll get it again, but. He, he deserves it. He's a he's an entertaining guy for sure. I mean, that, that's a guy that needs to be in the booth or in the studio all the time because he is fearless. He's fearless. He's unapologetic for how he feels, for who he is, for the way he processes the game and the world. And if you don't like it, who cares? That's his. And that, you know what? That's the kind of guy I want to hear from, man. I don't. Yep. I, I don't want to hear from somebody who's putting every statement through six filters. Before the mouth opens up, man, that's why Barkley is so successful. He doesn't care. He's going to tell yep. you exactly what he thinks. If I'm, I'm telling you, man, if I'm running a, a broadcast company someplace, I'm trying to collect as many of those characters as I can. Yeah, a hundred percent. He always is that way. And family, family number one. You know, nothing before his family and his kids, his wife and kids. Like, you know, some fan says something bad. Ozzy's going in the third row. That's it, just you don't talk bad about <laughs> my family. So. Talk bad about Nick Swisher. Don't talk bad about my family. That's <laughs> to be a bumper sticker on Ozzy's SUV. Uh, well, hey, Maddie, I appreciate it, dude. I really appreciate you coming by and, and uh, stopping by off the mound and having fun with us. So great to catch up with you. Yeah, man. This was fun. Good good visiting with you, Demp. We've never uh, talked about some of that stuff before. So, yeah, dude, thanks for having me on here. This is a good time. Hope to see you in the building soon. Heck yeah, man. Well, there you have it, folks. The voice of Sunday Night Baseball, he's done a ton of things all the way down to winning the grand prize of the supermarket sweeps, which I don't really know if he collected on that grand prize. It's still probably backordered. So great to catch up with Matty V. Always a huge fan of his, the work he does. He's so good. Nobody calls a game quite like Matty V. Uh, Santa Maria, as the popular home run call he always drops. Never really got into that. I don't know. Maybe the next time he's back on off the mound. Anyways, if you enjoyed the conversation like we just had, you can hear more conversations like that one. All you have to do is download and subscribe to the Off the Mount with Ryan Dempster podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and it's all presented by our good friends at Sloan. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you later. Bye.